we are going to look at the parsha first. There's something notable about the first two parshas in the Torah. They have more of a universal scope. They, they're very vast. It's a vast para, uh, panorama. The first one is about the creation of the universe, about the first two human beings ever, and then about some of the family's dysfunction that erupted shortly thereafter. Uh, this one is like an ongoing part of that story. It's about people that every single one of us are descended from. Like, I'm, I'm curious, how many of you know who the names of some of your great-grandparents? Okay, most of us do. How about your great-great-grandparents? How many of you know the names of some of them? Okay. Uh, I, I, I know the names of a couple of my great-great-grandparents on my, my dad's and Bob's side. Um, how about the names of your great-great-great-grandparents? Do any of you know any of their names? Wow, okay. Even farther back? Do you know some of the family names even farther back? Okay. So basically, when you hit four greats, it's gone from the family recollection. The fascinating thing about the Torah, though, is this is your family history. Whether, whether you be descended directly from one of the sons of Noah and you have no Israel blood in you or whatever, this parsha is all about your family history because it's all about Noah and his wife who happen to be like your great, 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 however many greats, grandpa and grandma. So we're, we're, like, we're talking really old family history here. Something else that is notable about this parsha is it's all about humanity in general. Like in the next parsha, the rubber is going to be reading, the covenantal rubber is going to be reading the, meeting the road. Yahweh is going to be speaking to Avram, calling him out. He's going to be giving him specific promises for a nation that will go on to bless the nations of the world. But that hasn't happened yet. We're still on Noah here. So it's, it's, it's a very fascinating read for that, for that reason. It's also fascinating. The first two parishes in the Torah span approximately like 2,000 years. So if you're a young earth creationist and if you believe the, the, the chronologies in the Bible, then we're, we're around Y6K right now. We're around 6,000 years. So these first two parishes cover the first third of human history. That's, all, that's actually a very significant block of time. And uh, that's what we're going to be looking at together here. Yeshua said something very, very relevant about this parish. He, he said, as it was in the days of, the, the, of Noah, so it shall be in the days of the Son of Man. So there are going to be, there's going to be a distinct set of parallels between the way things were going in Noah's generation and the way things are going in the generation when the king returns. And there's, I think there might be something deeper there too. He's, I think what he's also saying is simply, things aren't going to change, guys. People don't change. Um, in, in the modern era, and even in the postmodern era, there's a lot of language about how everything is changing and we're entering into a new era. And it's all about transformation and all this. But on a deeper level, actually, no. Uh, human beings have always been the same since the fall. And uh, there are some things that are very uniform. So we're going to look at some of those. Uh, the, 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 this portion has the same creator then as we, as we interact with now. It has the same, there's some same dynamics relating to the people that are the creator's friends. And then there's some distinct parallels between everybody else then and everybody else now. So we're going to profile the creator, his friends, and everybody else. And we're going to see if we can discover some parallels. Okay, firstly, in this Parsha, we see the Father and the Son talking with each other. They're actually very communicative. It's like, it's like we get to listen in for a second on the divine dialogue going on between the Father and the Son, the pre-incarnate Son. In, uh, in Breshit, Genesis chapter 11, verse 1, 
there's this massive construction project going on. The first like world skyscraper is underway. Uh, they don't have very advanced tools, so they're making it out of mud bricks. First skyscraper out of mud bricks. And um, I, I just love this. Yahweh says, it says in... Um, it says in 11 verse 5, Yahweh came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. I love that. He, he, like, he could have seen it from heaven or wherever exactly he's positioned, right? It says he came down to see the thing. And then it goes on to say in verse 6, Yahweh said, look at this. They are one people and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down and... Confuse their language so that they won't understand one another's speech. So this is an example. Now, we have two questions to face. Is, is God like a single person? and Is he talking with himself? Or is this the Father and the Son in that dialogue with each other? I believe it's, it's the Father and the Son, and we're getting to listen in for a second. Actually, this is a, this is a great way to make Scripture study come alive. You, you, you know the phrase, reading between the lines? You have the lines, the literal text, and then sometimes you can read into it and say, what's really being said here? Or what's the heart behind this? Well, I encourage you, as you're studying the word, to listen between the lines. Listen for that ongoing dialogue between the Father and the Son. It's everywhere. I'll give you an example. Uh, There's a mitzvah in the Torah about when someone is hung on a tree, they're cursed by Elohim, take them down before nightfall. This is a prophecy of the beloved Son of the Father being crucified, ultimately. But think about it. What is the dialogue going on between the Father and the Son as they give this mitzvah to Moses? What is the Father saying to the Son? What is the Son saying to the Father? And if you, if you like, go behind the scenes, as it were, if you listen between the lines, you'll discover that there's a very rich fellowship going on between Elohim the Father and Elohim the Son throughout all of history. And it, it, will make, it will make the word come alive for you. So I, I leave that as a practical assignment for you from this parasha. Sometimes he lets us listen in. Uh, we also see in this parasha that the creator of the universe is very involved in human affairs. He's, he's really engaged. And not just with individuals, as we tend to think in the Western world. On an international scale, he's really interested so, you know, in, in this, they're having this global construction project of building this skyscraper. And he's actually interested. He say, let's go down and see what the sons of men are doing. Let's go check out this tower of theirs. I love that. Next, next time you watch the news, next time you're reading the newspaper, let that be your perspective. That the creator of the universe, Yahweh, he's very engaged. Now, um, th- this is in direct contradistinction with uh, deism. If you're familiar with the worldview of deism, deism says basically there is uh, an intelligent creator, he set things in motion, and then he basically withdrew and who knows where he is now. It's kind of the concept of you, 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 get the wa- you build the watch, you wind it up, and then you just leave it to, cl- to tick and wind itself down. That's the concept of deism. Basically, it's the concept that the creator is an absentee father. Now, if your version of the Creator is as an absentee father, you are in danger of becoming an absentee father also because you become like the one you worship. Very dangerous. Um, There are so many reasons that deism is inconsistent and doesn't make sense. I'm not even going to go there. All that to say, the second portion in the Torah very clearly says, you have a Creator who is very involved. He is an engaged father. He's really interested. He's watching. 
We also see in this parsha that he doesn't just come down and kind of walk around, move, move amongst the crowd as it were and watch. He also is listening and he's talking. This is fascinating. Uh, the, the scriptural term for when somebody hears the Creator talking to them is prophecy. Everybody say prophecy. And we've talked about this many times. But biblically speaking, prophecy is just when He talks to you and you have a clear reception of what it, he, what it is He's saying. Uh, Noah was a prophet. He heard from the Almighty. He talked to Him on a personal level. Now, the world religions of Islam and Judaism both teach that prophecy isn't available to your average human being. Islam, basically, the, the idea of the creator of the universe speaking to an individual is foreign to Islam. In Judaism, you have the scriptures. Uh, there were prophets in ancient times, but that gift has been withdrawn. Now, if you really need to know what the Bible means or what your halakha is to be, you go to the rabbi. Is more the idea in Judaism. However, in Messianic Judaism, as defined by the writings of Yeshua's apostles, we believe something very different. Prophecy, that is an intimate relationship with the Creator, being able to hear from Him for yourself, is actually something that's available to every human being who wants it. And in fact, it even says explicitly, this is the gift that you should really want. This is a spiritual endowment to desire. That's what, uh, that's what Yeshua's emissary Shaul wrote. Uh, there, is, there is a stream of thought in Christianity called cessationism. Everybody say cessationism. And that basically teaches that the, the Holy Spirit doesn't do stuff anymore. That the gifts of the Holy Spirit were for the first century, but they only were around until the apostles wrote the New Testament. And now that we have the Bible, now that we have the New Testament written down, we really don't need the Holy Spirit to heal people or to grant... Um, communication in other languages or to grant the gift of faith etc uh, etc et basically the supernatural element of the faith has been excised since the first century that's that's what cessationism teaches uh, to some degree I think cessationism is a reaction to hyper charismania now I'm a conservative charismatic I believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit but I do not believe in like excesses and wildness and all this stuff that sometimes happens right so that's that's the idea of cessationism um, basically we have the Bible so we don't need the Creator to talk to us anymore now hopefully the Bible is your priority but hopefully you also have a personal relationship with him we also see in this parasha that the creator of the universe judges between right and wrong from an objective standard. He differentiates between good and evil. This is a very, very unpopular idea in the Western world. In the Western world, it's like super taboo to ever suggest that something, is doing, something someone is doing is wrong. The idea of objective standards of what's right and not right, very unpopular. Thumbs down. People get very offended at that. They say, that's wrong. It's wrong to have definitions of what's right and wrong. To which I would say, how can you say it's wrong? You don't have any definitions of what's right or wrong. You can't really be a part of this dialogue. But anyway, uh, we see in this parsha though that the Creator does watch. He does take note of people's actions and He does say, I have a standard, I have an objective standard of what's right and wrong, and that's wrong. And I'm judging that. That's evil. I don't like that. So we see that in this parsha, it's the direct opposite of subjective morality and do what you feel like ism. I coined that term, by the way. I didn't copyright it, so you can thank you. So you can use it. Do what you feel like ism is very popular in the Western world and often in the religious world. Yeah, here's here's a really cool verse about how the Creator is communicative, how He talks to people. In in the prophet Amos, Amos chapter three, verse seven, this is what it says: Surely. 
Adonai Yahweh does nothing unless he reveals his secret counsel. The Hebrew word there is sowed. He reveals his sowed, like his secrets, to his servants, the prophets. Isn't that cool? He actually doesn't do anything, according to the prophet Amos, without talking to his close friends about it first, his servants, the prophets. Now, cessationism would say that was true in the ancient world, but the Creator changed the way He related after the first century because now we have the Bible. I have a hard time with that. For instance, the, prophet, uh, the prophets Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, they were, like, they were like headline news prophets. They were commenting on current events. And sometimes they would even foretell stuff. So they would be like, okay, the Egyptian army is going to be like, trashed by the Babylonian army. Uh, or Tyre. Tyre was like this big metropolitan center. It's going to be destroyed by the Babylonians. You read stuff like this in Ezekiel. Okay, that's great. It's in the Bible. It was the Creator talking about current events thousands of years ago. But does the Creator not talk about current events now? Has He just kind of tuned out of what's going on in the world? No! That's deism. I think to some degree cessationism is like a Christianized form of deism. The Creator is just kind of disengaged. That's, that's my opinion. We also see in this parsha that the Creator doesn't just talk to His friends and tell them about stuff that's going to happen. He also issues mitzvot. That's the Hebrew word for commands. I'll give you an example. He's talking to Noah, and he says, Okay, Noah, I'm, he shares with him like, what he's going to do. And then he says, And this is what I want you to do. And then he gives him a mitzvah. He says, Build a really big boat. Here's the template. Here are the architectural designs for it. That was a mitzvah. Now let me ask you, was Noah saved? Yes. yes, he was saved. Was he saved by faith? Yes. Was he also saved by his works that sprung from his faith? Yes. Can you imagine if Noah was like, Amen, I believe it, I receive it, but then he didn't build the ark? That would not have been real faith. He would have been washed away with everybody else. So it's an example of how faith and works go hand in hand and result in the salvation of individuals, families, and sometimes, in this case, all of humanity. We also see in this parsha that the Creator remembers His friends. He thinks about them. He really cares about them. And He acts on their behalf. In Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, it says, But Elohim remembered. Everybody say, remembered. Noah and all the animals and all the cattle that were with him in the ark. It's kind of cool. He didn't just remember Noah and his family. He was thinking about the animals and the cattle in the ark too. And it says, And Elohim caused a wind to pass over the earth and the water subsided. You'll notice almost every time it says, And Elohim remembered somebody in the scriptures, it goes on to say, And he acted on their behalf. And this is what he did. This is the way he operates. He remembers his friends and he acts on their behalf. Because he cares about them. He's thinking about them. And it's kind of cool that he thinks about the animals too. So for people who care about animals, yeah, you know what? You're, you're reflecting something about the Creator and His sentiments also. Um, we also see in this parasha that he doesn't just think about his friends, he rescues them from life-threatening disasters. It's also critically important, he wasn't playing favorites with Noah and his family. He was making salvation available to everybody on the planet. 
It says explicitly, Noah was a preacher of righteousness. So he didn't just have a secret little plan here, how he was going to get raptured off planet Earth in the ark, and everybody else was going to be left to drown. Noah was pretty vocal about what was going on. It's just nobody wanted to believe him. Nobody wanted to chip in on the construction project. I think it's sad. It would have been really cool if there were some people who were like, Noah, you're really tight with the Almighty. And I, 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 think, you're, I, think, I, think, I think what you're saying is crazy, but it's true. And it's going to happen, and I'm going to help you build this thing. I mean, it would have been so nice. There would have been some other families that would have made it, you know. All they just say, salvation in the ancient world was available to everybody. It's the, it's the Creator's way. Uh, we also see in this parsha that the Creator takes pleasure in acts of worship. After the flood, they disembarked from the ark. And one of the first things that Noah and his family did is they built a mizbeach, an altar. And then they made some animal offerings. And it says, I really love what it says there. It says that the Creator... Let's see how it says it in English here. It says, um, Oh, where is it? Okay, there it is. Uh, Genesis 8, verse 21. It says, Yahweh smelled the soothing aroma. And Yahweh said to himself, I will never again curse the ground. So it says he smelled it. And I really love the Hebrew word for soothing aroma because it turns up often in reference to the sacrificial offerings in the temple. The word is reach. Nihoach. Reach is related to Ruach. What is Ruach? Breath or wind or spirit. So that's Ruach. Reach is like something that you smell. It's a related word. It's a fragrance. And Nihoach is the Hebrew word for like something that's catchy or attractive or like kind of engaging. It kind of has that idea. Um, so here it's, it's, it's rendered as like a also like soothing and re- relieving. It's a big word. But here, so this is something that he, he took note of. and he, It's kind of like you can imagine the creator of the universe in response to the worship of his friends going, that's the idea. I don't know, if you've ever had someone that said something to you and it was just really refreshing, like it just, it caused you to just stop and take a deep breath. That's the idea behind this. So this is, this is something that, of course, continues to be the case today. The Creator, He loves your worship. He takes a deep breath when you, when you speak lovingly to Him and, uh, and acknowledge Him. Uh, something else we see in this Parsha is that the Creator doesn't do casual relationships. In the Western world, uh, casual relationships are an epidemic. One night stands, casual dating, just hooking up and breaking up, uh, dumping, dumping your, your boyfriend or your girlfriend on Facebook without even telling them. Really, really popular today, eh? Um, I don't know if you were aware of that, but statistically, like, there are a lot of people, let's say that you're young and you're dating and you want to end the relationship, you have a relationship status on Facebook, right? Married, single, it's complicated, you have some different choices. Some people, instead of like telling their boyfriend or girlfriend they're going to dump them, they'll just change the relationship status on Facebook, and that's how you tell them. Ouch. That's called casual relationships. The creator of the universe does the exact opposite, though. He relates in what we would call covenant relationships. A covenant relationship is one that's clearly defined, and it's based on devotion, and it's like unconditional often. This is the idea. And... um, this is, this is what he does. Um, apparently, Noah, he wasn't just like a buddy of the Holy One. He had a covenant relationship with Yahweh. 
When Yahweh first spoke to Noah, he wasn't just talking to him as some friend that he, that he randomly picked out. He said, I'm going to establish my covenant with you. So Noah had a serious covenant-based relationship with Yahweh. And that was, that was uh, the relationship from which sprung not only his salvation, but the salvation of Noah's entire family. Uh, one more thing about the Creator in this parasha is that he forms clouds. I don't know, we don't generally think like that. But the Hebrew verb there in Genesis chapter 9, where he's talking about clouds, in Genesis 9.14, it says, It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth. In the Hebrew, it literally says, when I cloud. Yahweh clouds, like he forms the clouds. So when you look up, like when you're driving, let's say commuting to or from work, or just going for a walk, or you look out your window in the morning and you see clouds, the creator of the universe is that very second forming those clouds. He says, I cloud, I form the clouds. Isn't that cool? Because like there are clouds all around the earth. There are constantly changing weather systems. And he says, I'm like forming those right now. Maybe it's one of the creator's forms of artwork. I think so. I love watching the clouds. And have you ever just lay on your ground, maybe on the ground, maybe when you were young or maybe when you weren't so young, and just cloud watched? It's amazing. And sometimes they change so fast. Sometimes you can almost see animals or people's faces and things like that. It's awesome. Well, just know that from the second portion of the Torah, Yahweh makes the clouds. And he goes on to say that he also watches rainbows. Did you notice that about us as human beings? We love rainbows. We do. It's like if you see a rainbow, it's like, there's a rainbow. Really, like you just can't ignore it. I don't know. For me, I know if there's a really nice rainbow, I'll be like, look, there's a rainbow, and we'll go and we'll look at it out the, out the window. Well, you're created in his image, and that's something that he does. He says, when I form a rainbow, I look at that rainbow and I remember something. So just remember that as you, as you, and I mean, hey, we live in Saskatchewan, right? Land of the living skies. So this is like, this is awesome for people who live in Saskatchewan. Watching the clouds, noticing the rainbows. These are like little, little, little points when you can just remember Yahweh, when you can create, connect with him and know that the cloud you're watching is the cloud he's forming. Know that the, the rainbow you're looking at is the rainbow that he as a person is looking at also. Like looking at it with him. I love that. Uh, we also uh, can profile his friends in this parsha. Um, these are these are these are some things that continue to be true of his people today, of course, and on into the future. Uh, firstly, it says about Noah that he was a tzaddik. Everybody say tzaddik. It means a righteous individual. Uh, it has the connotation of someone who is constitutionally right. It also has the, the idea, it's like a legal word that would be used in court situations for someone who is in the right or who has been legally exonerated. All right. So Noah in legal terms was right with the Creator. This is also a word that's sometimes translated as justified. Noah was a person who was justified. Now let me ask you, was Noah justified by trying to be a good person? By works, maybe, or something like that. Eh, no, that's never been the case, actually. Where it says that he was a tzaddik, when he was righteous, he was justified. That is in um, Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. And in the verse directly prior to that, it says, But Noah found grace in the eyes of Yahweh. So did you notice that? He found grace in the eyes of Yahweh. He experienced the Father's favor. And in the very next verse he says, and he was a tzaddik. He was righteous. He was justified. So I love that. The first portion, I mean the second portion in the Torah, the, grand, the great granddaddy of everybody on planet earth, 
He experienced the Creator's grace. He received the Father's favor. And it was through that that he was justified. Noah was justified by grace through faith. It's always been the same rules. I love that. That is the heritage of every person on planet Earth because every person is descended from great-granddaddy Noah. Um, it doesn't just say that he was a righteous dude. It also says that he was a preacher of righteousness. In um, Shimon Kepha, in Peter's second letter, chapter 2, verse 5, it says he was a preacher of righteousness. Uh, preachers and preaching aren't very popular in our culture, generally speaking. Don't preach at me, right? Don't get preachy at me. Those kind of phrases. I think you could basically just that mean that like, he was a straight shooter and he was vocal about righteousness. It's very tempting in our world when people start, let's say, um, talking about disgusting things or like exalting uh, foulness or uh, any one of like, the many unrighteous things that are uh, popular in our culture. It's really easy to just kind of keep your mouth shut and stare at the ground, right? The idea of Noah being a preacher of righteousness is he would step into the conversation, he would engage, and he, at the very least he would say, well, I don't see things that way. There is another viewpoint. There is, I believe, an objective standards of righteousness. So Noah was vocal about that. And uh, he's an inspiration to me because, frankly, I hate conflict. I hate disagreeing with people. I I would rather be everybody's friend. And um, that is a human weakness of mine. And so I look up up to Noah because he was a guy with some guts. And he wasn't afraid to speak out and step in at times. It also says that Noah was tamim. I think that's probably translated, if you have like a, a Christian Bible, that's like translated as maybe blameless or perfect or something. Uh, Art Scroll, the Orthodox Jewish translation, renders Tamim as wholehearted. I really love that translation too. And I do think that's a really good translation. Noah was wholehearted. So he wasn't just going through the motions. He wasn't just a spiritual person half the time. He wasn't just righteous because his parents were. Like, this was, this was who he was from the bottom of his heart. Like, he was engaging fully on an emotional level and in terms of who he really was in his relationship with the creator of the universe and uh, in, in carrying out the mitzvot and in preaching to his generation. It also has the idea of having integrity. So, it's the idea of, like, consistency, integrity, honesty. These, these are traits that Noah carried by grace. Um, it also says, this is a Hebrew idiom, it says that Noah walked with Elohim. Actually, the Hebrew, the Hebrew verb there is hithalech. Everybody say hithalech. So halach is to walk. Hit, if it's on the front of a verb, means you cause yourself to do something or you do it to yourself. It's the hithpa'el verb form. So actually, a better translation would be he walked himself or he caused himself to walk. He walked intentionally with Elohim. Can you hear the difference? It's like saying, this is going to take some effort on your part. This is going to have to be an intentional thing. You may have to block time out of your schedule. This is going to have to be something you want. Uh, That's the idea there. It took emotional energy. It took a choice on Noah's part. The idea of walking with somebody. I actually, I was just meditating on that this week. I really like the... The picture of walking with someone. Like, let's, I'll, just, I'll just come over here. And let's just say that, that the creator of the universe is walking like in human form. And he's just walking along. And the idea is, like, I'm just, I'm walking with him. I'm watching him. I'm keeping in step with him. So wherever he's going, that's where I'm going. Uh, 
It means whatever his viewpoint is, I'm right there beside him. I'm, I'm watching things from his viewpoint. That's kind of the idea. If he's, wherever he's going to be a decade from now, I'm going to be there too. Um, I, I think uh, committed friendships are a great example of that. The marriage covenant is another great example of that. It's people saying, you know what, I'm going to go where you go. I'm going to walk with you. We're going to stay in step with each other. We're going to do life together. And Noah apparently had that relationship with the creator of the universe. That's the heritage of everybody descended from Noah. Uh, Noah, he was totally counterculture. His worldview totally clashed with everybody else's. I assume that lawlessness was a ramp- rampant. I assume everybody was doing whatever they wanted and however they felt and they were defining the world as they desired to. Noah was like so out of the box. Like really, it had never rained in the history of the world. Maybe they didn't even have a word for it. I don't know. Maybe it was like, guys, the creator of the universe spoke to me and it's going to rain. And so they're like, what's rain? And be like, well, it's more like water is going to fall out of the sky. Lots of it. And it's going to be like everywhere. And the people are going to be floating around and we're all going to die unless, unless uh, we repent and stuff. Like, that's maybe, maybe the kind of vibe that people would be getting from Noah. Like, that's really out of the box. That's really counterculture. So, just remember, when you enter into a friendship with the Creator, you are going to end up counterculture. You are going to end up out of the box. People are going to be like, wow, that person thinks in really different ways. That's a really uh, novel idea. Um, This is notable. Apparently, Noah had an understanding that some animals are clean, and some animals just aren't. And some animals you offer to the Creator of the universe in worship... And some you just don't. So even on, on the ark, there were clean animals, and they came two by two, and the, uh, the unclean animals, sorry, and the clean animals came seven, like with seven of each one of them, which is interesting. And after the flood, he offered the clean animals. So just to remember that, from the dawn of history, there has been a perspective on the Creator's part that some animals are clean and some aren't. And my assumption is, when Yeshua came, that didn't change. When the apostles wrote down the apostolic scriptures, that didn't change. And we could go into a big discussion about that, but just take note of that. These are like foundational principles from the first couple of portions of the Torah. Uh, you'll also notice here that Noah prioritized worship. I don't know about you, but like, after being stuck in a big boat with a lot of freaking out animals that were probably really stinky... I'd be so happy to get off that thing. Like, honestly, I don't know if I would get off the boat and be like, okay, let's build an altar now. Let's go get some rocks and build an altar and pray. I'd be like, yes, let's go for a run. Or let's, I don't know, let's go. I don't know what I would want to do. But it's just really cool that like, his first response when he got off the ark is, let's go get some rocks, let's build an altar, and let's pray. Let's acknowledge the Creator's grace. Let's thank Him for what He's done for us. That's awesome. And it's, it's a great example too of, how we can do that. You know, in the flesh, it is not our first response to pray, to acknowledge um, our gracious Father, but His Spirit in us does. So when you feel that little prompting in your spirit, when you have that little twinge of gratitude, don't ignore that. Like, foster that inside yourself. And don't expect someone else to be like, let's pray right now. Let's give thanks. Be the initiator. Be the first one to say that. Especially like I, I, I would, you know, as a young husband and father, I'm learning about this. Uh, husbands, fathers, men. Let's, let's be the first ones to be like, let's pray right now. Let's just stop and say, say a word of thanks. And it, it doesn't have to be a big production, right? It doesn't have to be a huge occasion. Everyone doesn't have to like fall on their faces. It just, just stop and say thanks, right? I think it's part of creating a culture where Yahweh is welcome and where gratitude is, is a hallmark 
of, of us as a community. Uh, honestly, that's a tough one for me. It's something I'm really growing in, but uh, so I, I share that with you as something that I, I want to grow in. Um, we also see in this parsha that Noah understood that he as a father had a power to speak into the lives of his children in meaningful ways, ways that would actually help shape their destinies and determine where they went in life. Now, you could ask, was his blessing causative? Did it cause the direction that his children went? Or was it responsive? Was it simply a response to where he saw his children going as he looked at their lives with the prophetic vision that a father can often have? I don't know. But the point is, Noah spoke into his son's lives. He blessed them. And as fathers, that is, that is a mantle that is upon every one of you. The, the, the mantle of the Spirit is on you to pray for your, your children and grandchildren, to speak into their lives, and to actually foresee things that are going to happen in their lives and to, to speak those forth. It's very powerful. And not just fathers as patriarchs. I believe this absolutely applies to mothers and grandmothers as matriarchs also. I, I know, for instance, my mom is a very spiritual person. Uh, she prays for me regularly. And she has spoken into my life so many times in very meaningful ways. And I've, I value the blessings that I've received from my mom uh, just as much as, as from my dad. So if this isn't just something, of course, that applies to patriarchs. This is something that equally applies to matriarchs. And we see this in great-great-granddaddy uh, Noah. Uh, you'll also notice in this parasha that uh, they were keeping track of time. They actually had a calendar going. They would, you'll notice that often each one of these little uh, sub-accounts would begin with, and on such and such a day of such and such a month, this happened. Isn't that interesting? It's interesting that it doesn't say, you know, on January 14th, on November 11th, or whatever. Uh, you know, the, Ro the Gregorian Roman calendar that the Western world is based on, it's actually like a spin-off of the original lunar calendar. Originally, in the Bible, and apparently in Noah's time, they kept tabs on where they were in the month by the lunar cycles. So a full lunar cycle is a month. In the Native American world, I think sometimes to say a month, you'd simply say a moon, right? And I mean, in the, in the Roman calendar, is kind of close to that. But some days have like, okay, February has 28 days. Do you know why? Do you know why some, some months have like 31 days and others have 28 days? It's because there were a couple of Roman emperors that had really, really, really high self-esteem. And they named months of the calendar after themselves. Like Caesar Augustus, for instance, the month of August is named after him. July is named after Julius Caesar. And they actually pulled a month out of February and stuck it in their month just because they wanted their month to have an extra day. Because these guys were really big guys. So the month that is named after them, of course, should have a, have a, have a, be a really big month. Isn't that hilarious? Like, really? There's like the fingerprints of Julius Caesar and Caesar Augustus on our calendar, on the wall, and how we do time. Anyway, it's kind of funny. But all of this stuff is a spin-off of the original calendar that the creator of the universe had, which was a cycle of the moon determines a month. Yes, that's right. <laughs> that's cool. Um, now, notable also with this is apparently Noah was keeping tabs on this. This was the calendar that he structured his life by. And I'm guessing that Noah journaled. Because we have records, very precise records of what happened. Now, could it be that it simply was downloaded into Moses and he wrote it all out? Perhaps. But it's more probable that these were records that were preserved throughout the generations of Israel and that Moses finally codified those ancient uh, either written or oral traditions. So if you are in the, have a tendency towards journaling, just know that like your great, 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 great grandpa did too. On such and such a day, this happened. On such and such a day, Elohim spoke to me and this is what he said. 
So I encourage you, if you don't journal, it might be something to get in the groove of. Again, it doesn't have to be a big production. It doesn't have to be a painful thing. It's just like write down when significant events happen. Maybe have a special book for it. Or if you have a revelation from the Father, if He shows you something or if He speaks something specific to you, take a second to write it down. That will immediately put you in that group of men like Noah and the prophets who actually took the time to write stuff down for posterity. It's part of leaving a legacy, in my opinion. So that's, a, that's an overview of Noah and some of the Creator's friends. Oh, one other kind of funny thing about the lunar calendar is, like, if you look at the way it went, when month one started of that year, the whole planet was underwater, and Noah was floating around in a boat. <laughs> so based on that, I kind of wonder if it was only the Aviv barley that determined when the year started. <laughs> you know, often, in, in the second temple era, in the Jewish world, the Aviv barley was one of the things that helped the the governmental leaders of the nation to say, okay, this is month one in the spring. But there are also a couple other things, like which new moon was closest to the, uh, the spring equinox. So my guess is maybe that Noah was going by the positions of the heavenly bodies also, not by the barley. Or he would have been like, well, the whole planet's underwater. I don't see any barley out there. I guess month one can't start this year. <laughs> if you're going on to like, I don't know, okay, month 17, month 18, month 19. This is crazy. <laughs> I don't know, that's, it's hard to tell, it's very conjectural, right? But it was one of my little musings on this parasha that I was thinking about. Uh, I want to look with you too at everybody else. The way people were in Noah's time, totally the way people are today. It's fascinating. Um, in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, uh, Calvinists love this verse. Then Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil, continually. Uh, the Hebrew word there for intent is yetzar. Everybody say yetzar. It means like what you're inclined to, what you will naturally resort to. What, what, what you do when you're really not thinking and you're just acting from who you really are. That's the idea of yetzar. And it says, like every inclination of his heart's thoughts was only evil continually. It was like always bad, only bad, nothing but bad. That, that is the biblical analysis of human beings apart from Yahweh coming into our lives and changing us from the inside out and making us new people. Always bad, only bad, nothing but bad. And not just in terms of our behavior, but what we want to do and what we think about doing. So, if you, like, there, there was a song that was pretty popular on the radio maybe half a decade or a decade ago. We are, we are, we are all innocent. Did you hear, do you remember hearing that song? Eh, so not true. It's like, we as human beings, we have this tendency to want to justify ourselves and say, yeah, we're perfect, we're really good. And it's like, the creator of the universe is actually like, au contraire, you are so messed up. That's, uh, so that's, that's his analysis of humanity. And uh, just to underscore the point, just in case we think, well, Noah was a good guy, maybe after Noah people were good, because of course goodness is a chromosomal thing, it comes through human's DNA, right? Hmm. Just to just to uh, just to make sure that we don't come to that conclusion, Genesis chapter eight verse twenty one says, Yahweh smelled the soothing aroma, and Yahweh said to himself, "I'll never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth." So basically, you hit adolescence, and you are a bad person, and your natural inclinations will be bad, <laughs> right? Now, thankfully, that's not the end of the story, though. Um, the total depravity of humanity is a fact, but it's not the end of the story because we know that the creator of the universe doesn't offer us a gospel saying, well, you know what, just try a little harder. 
be a little bit better, apply these tips and techniques to your life. You know, we have a system of morality and just kind of grow in that. Try and be good for a day a week for beginners. Um, think positive thoughts. Maybe you just need some more education. We'll just send you to school for a couple more years. Uh, the, these, are, these are the Gospels that are most often offered in not just in the secular world, but in the Christian and the Jewish worlds also. Education, positive thinking, behavioral modification. And you know what? That is not the Gospel that the Creator of the universe offers. The Gospel that He offers is in this Parsha. He offers His grace. And He says, I will justify you. I will make you right. And I will not just make you legally right. I won't just give you a position of righteousness before you. I won't just forgive you and legally exonerate you of your sins, but I will transform you from the inside out. I will give you a new heart. Your old heart is evil. All it wants to do is bad stuff. But I will come in and change your heart. I will do like open heart surgery on you and replace it. That's the gospel. I'm so thankful for that. So, you know, often we as believers are pointed to and said, yeah, the, these people, they're just kind of uppity, uppity, goody-goody snobs who think they're better than everyone else. Actually, the opposite is true. Like, we as believers are people who are like, you know what, we are so messed up, we are like beyond help. Seriously, I am the biggest sinner in human history. I would do every evil thing under the sun. And I've come to acknowledge that about myself. And I've come to say, I actually, I can't pull myself up by my bootstraps. I can't help myself. But Yahweh has offered to change me and to help me. And I'm just accepting Him now. And you know what? People would say, well, that's weak. You know, faith in God, that's weak. Yeah, it is. But sometimes I wonder if the people who say that are really so strong themselves. That's my perspective um, on, on the gospel from this parasha. Um, we'll also note in this parasha that as a rule, the majority will, will reject the prophetic voice. So the creator of the universe, he has people that he, he takes hold of and he speaks through them and he places a prophetic mantle on them. And as a general principle, the majority will not listen to those people. All right? The world majority rejects the prophetic voice. In fact, the world majority takes the opposite view as a rule. What did Paul say in Romans 8? He said, like, the mind of the flesh, like who we are as physical human beings apart from the spirit, it's at enmity with him. It's his enemy, right? That's, that's the idea there. Um, we also see a couple other interesting uh, tendencies in this Parsha that we also can see even here in our city. Uh, we see in this Parsha a proclivity in human beings towards uh, alcohol abuse. And I, I, I did put this in the everybody else category, but this is actually something that the Creator's friend, who is in a covenant relationship with him, did. So apparently, believers sin too sometimes and make mistakes. Noah planted a vineyard, and then we have like the vineyard debacle where he abused alcohol and ended up totally drunk, and, like passed out in his tent. Ouch. Um, actually, Islam will point to passages like that and like in shock and be like, the Torah can't be true. It must have been corrupted because how could a righteous person ever sin? It's like, I don't think you're in touch with human beings if you really think righteous people never sin and sometimes make very grave mistakes. Um, if, you, if you look at the root of alcoholism, why people drink themselves to mental oblivion at times, my, 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 my personal perception is often that comes from escapism. It's like, my life sucks, I hate my life, uh, I, I just, my, I'm bored, I, I totally bleak, so I just need to get away. So I'm just going to drink so much alcohol that I'm totally oblivious to what's going on around me till so I've just passed out. Sometimes I actually think our, our Christian version of like 
Getting so hammered that you pass out is just sleeping way more than we need to or sleeping in. I mean, there's a time for that, right? I love sleeping in occasionally, but some people, some people, if they want to escape their lives, instead of just getting totally hammered, they'll just sleep as much as they can. Because it's the same effect. You're unconscious. You've escaped from your miserable little life. Same idea, escapism. Sometimes I think people with escapist tendencies in the Christian world, instead of getting hammered, they'll just fantasize about being raptured out of here, like constantly. It's like, just think about being raptured out of here, because I really don't want to be here. I have, a really, I have a really pathetic little life, and I just want to get away. Sometimes, sometimes escapist tendencies in the Christian world, instead of taking an expression like alcohol abuse, will take on expressions like, the rapture is like your pet doctrine, and it's all you think about. Um, that, would be, that would be another example. There are lots of escapist uh, tendencies we have. Another really popular one in our culture is gaming video games. Like, I don't have the stats on me right now, but you would be shocked at the number of hours single males between 18 and 34 play video games. Blow your mind. Like, hours and hours a week. That's escapism. It's like, I have a really boring life. I have no mission. But when I game, I have a life. I have a mission. There are, I'm rescuing this gorgeous woman, or I'm fighting these evil figures, or whatever. So in many ways, gaming is another expression of escapism in our culture. Uh, I, I think the, often the other um, like heart condition that alcohol abuse comes from is despair. It's kind of similar to escapism, but despair is just when, like, I have no hope. I, there's, no, there's no light at the end of the tunnel. I have no future, and I'm just going to drink. That, that often happens. And we, we see that apparently Noah, who is a righteous person, he wrestled with this also. Could it be that Noah wrestled with despair? Could it be that there were times when he, maybe he was depressed? Maybe the future looked bleak. Maybe he just wanted to escape. I don't know. We, we, we can't say, right? All we can look, do is look at the facts and say, he got so drunk that he passed out. Why? You can't say. All I have to say though, like, there's this kind of bridge that spans all of humanity. And uh, so when we look at our neighbors, when we look at coworkers, when they look at people, just remember the people, the people in your life are wrestling with the same stuff that Noah and that generation of humanity wrestled with. Uh, we also see in this parsha that human beings have a proclivity, proclivity to be excited by inappropriate illicit spectacles. Uh, Noah's son Ham saw him unclothed in an indecent state in his tent and apparently he found that exciting or really got him going somehow. He went told his brothers and stuff. It could have just been that he was delighting in the fact that his dad had, had fallen and had a moment of sin. But there's something really important there. That's something deep in the human psyche and, it, and it's like really unhealthy and twisted, but it's there. Now, in the, in the West, like in the secular world, that will often take the manifestation of porn addiction. In the Christian world, it often takes the manifestation of gossip and slander. Like, Noah's son got, he was really pumped by the fact that he saw his dad sin. That his dad had a problem, that he made a mistake. And what did he do? He ran and he told somebody else. And like, seriously, we do that so often in the religious world. You know, so porn, big bad sin, really stigmatized. And it is a really big bad sin, right? But then we have our own version that passes as fine often in the religious world. So just notice that. That is something deep in the human psyche that turns up in this parasha also. Uh, dishonoring parents is something that that first generation struggled with. I don't know. I, I would really like to know what was going on in the mind of Ham. But apparently there was something really wrong there. 
Maybe he was thinking he could just ride on the coattails of his father's faith. Maybe he thought, yeah, my dad's a prophet. We just survived the flood. I'm doing pretty good. Maybe he just thought, yeah, I belong to a believing family. No, it's not enough. Every human being has to have their own thing with the creator of the universe. Has to have their own faith in him. That's a big message for, for everybody, whether they're being Christian, Jewish, Muslim, agnostic, atheist. Um, give you a give you one one object lesson from this parasha. This is kind of kind of fun. This is a Hebrew idiom. I'm gonna I'm gonna gonna teach you a Hebrew verse while we're at it. I have here a little bowl of water, and I grabbed one of Tears's tubby toys. Well, this is going to be our object lesson today. If you want to flip to the next thing, we're going to Hebrew verse that. Uh, we're going to read a Hebrew verse that kind of pictures something uh, of this. Okay, so this uh, this verse is Genesis chapter seven, verse eighteen. Genesis seven eighteen says, "The water prevailed, and increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water." The first line there says. Vayigbaru, that means to become powerful. Hamayim, the water. So the water was becoming pro- powerful, prevailing. Vayirbu, that means to become like multitudinous or great. Meod, very. Al haaretz, on, on the earth or the land. Vatelech, that means, uh, it literally means and walked. It's the verb halach, to walk. Vatelech, Hateva. What's the teva? The, the box, the ark. That's right. Vatela hateva. So that means literally, and the ark walked all pane on the faces of hamayim, the water. So I just, I did, it jumped out of me. I never noticed it. The Hebrew idiom for floating is walking on the water. Where it says the ark floated, it literally says the ark walked on the water. Who does that remind you of? Of Yeshua, of course. He walked on the water. It's like he physically floated on the water. I just love the concept. Like the buoyant Mashiach. Like he floats on the water. So just kind of like, this would be an example. This little tubby toy is walking on the water. It's, it's floating. It's a, it's a Hebrew idiom. And I, I think maybe, that's, maybe there's an insight there for us on a deeper level. Yeshua? Okay, where other people would just go under and drown, Yeshua floats. He's a very buoyant person. And when we are in Yeshua, we will face circumstances and situations where people would just go under in an instant and die. It's like, I'm in over my head and I'm kicking and screaming and suffocating right now and, and gurgling. But as believers, the spirit of Yeshua in you is really buoyant. It's like you can actually walk on water, float, where other people would just be like drowning. It's kind of the idea there. So remember that. There's a buoyant spirit in you. There's a spirit that floats on stuff that nobody else can float on. Supernatural. And I guarantee you, family, friends, coworkers will notice that. When you face trials and you face them with serenity and you stay buoyant and they don't get you down, that is a supernatural thing. And people do notice that. It's like in the boat, you know, the, the, the apostles in the boat, they were freaking out, right? I mean, it was bad enough that they were all going to die in the storm, and then this freaky ghost figure appears, just to freak them out even more. And then they do recognize it as Yeshua, but one of them had a different approach. He said, Master, if it's really you, call me to come to you on the water. I love that. Like, talk about a, an adventurous spirit, hey? And he actually walked on the water with Yeshua. 
So where other people are freaking out in situations, be the person to step out of the boat. Be the person to walk on the water with Yeshua. And just show them that there's a different way. Yeah. Oh, I was going to talk about Yochanan too. I'll just give you like a, a five-minute overview of Yochanan. A couple things that jump out at him. Yochanan the Immerser. Um, Yochanan the Immerser was the herald of the Mashiach. He heralded the coming of the king. And he was totally out of the box. He did not fit the religious people's expectations. I'll just point out a couple things to you about that. Uh, firstly, this guy like lived in the wilderness. He was probably something of a survivalist. He was basically living off the land. He probably only had one set of clothes. I don't know, maybe a couple or something. But um, like this guy was not your like really well-dressed, like well-kept individual. Okay, this guy was a, a bit of a wild man. And this is the guy that Yahweh chose to be the herald of the king. That's really counterculture right there. Um, he heralded the kingdom of God, i.e., the coming of the king. So he wasn't about bringing in a new religion. He wasn't about trying to be better people. He was saying, the king is coming. And in response, get ready, turn around, do what's right. My guess is when the spirit of Elijah falls on a generation to prepare the way for the return of the king, we're going to see some similar things. We're going to see people speaking out that will not match religious people's expectations, that will cause many people to stumble. Another thing you'll notice is Yochanan was very warm and, and inviting to people who came humbly and who were willing to change. But for religious people who just came to check it out and critique him, he really lay into those people. Like he confronted them openly. He called them some really like, really aggravating kinds of names. And my guess is, when that spirit falls on a generation, when Yahweh raises up prophets, religious people are really going to get it. They're going to be confronted. Uh, They're going to get offended. If they come to criticize, like, ouch. That's a, that's a big thing in here. We also see that Yochanan was leading a movement of repentance. People were, people, and people weren't just saying, yeah, you know, when I get home, I'm going to change a couple things. They were coming out publicly with their sins, and they were confessing them. It says that he wasn't just dunking people. It says they were confessing their sins. So they would say, this is what I've been doing. This was my lifestyle. These are, the, these are my closet things that I have been hiding. And I'm coming clean today. And then, and then he, would, he would immerse them. My guess, everybody, my guess is everybody on the shore, shore was going wild. I'm sure they were cheery. It was like, can you imagine the energy of seeing like someone say, I'm turning around today, I'm changing, and going under the water. Wow. And, it, and, and what, did a, what did Yeshua say? It was like the prostitutes, like the hookers, were the people who were coming and saying, I'm turning around today. The tax collectors, like the traitors to the nation, the most despicable people, the really unpopular guys. These are the people who are changing. My guess is when that spirit falls on a generation, when people speak in Yahweh's name, there, there may be some of the same dynamics. And Yochanan didn't point to himself. He constantly pointed to the king. He said, the king is coming. He's going to immerse you in the Ruach HaKodesh. Like in, in the real spiritual experience. This is, just, this is just an immersion in water, right? It's a physical thing. But the Holy Spirit's coming. I, I believe that will also be a hallmark of Yochanan and uh, the message that is going to reemerge in the generation that precedes the coming of Yeshua. So, something to watch for. Something to pray for. Something to be prepared for. Thank you for joining us in this message. I pray that it's been an inspiration to you and your discipleship to Yeshua the Messiah. 
Crown of Messiah is a relatively small congregation with a massive mission. We're not just making disciples and teaching the Word of God here in our city. We're also doing that internationally through vehicles such as the internet. It is our joy to offer you these messages for free at absolutely no charge. At the same time, we do have ongoing overhead expenses. It costs us something to produce these teachings and get them out to you. And we would appreciate it if you would, in turn, support our work in a practical way. Help us cover some of our basic expenses. You can do that by going to our website, crownofmessiah.com, and going to the donate page, where you can make a one-time donation, or you can set up a monthly automated donation. I'm reminded of the words of Yeshua's Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 6. He said, Let the one who is taught the word share everything good with his teacher. So, if you're being taught the word by us, we would appreciate it if you would take the words of Yeshua's Apostle seriously and make some type of return for the blessing that we are giving you for free. That way, we'll all be in it together and we will be a team accomplishing the mission that Yeshua has given us. And you will go from only being a receiver to also being a giver. If you're like most people, finances are tight. We understand that. Finances are tight for us too. That's why we need people like you to come alongside us and to back us in the work that Yeshua has called us to do. Thank you so much for making that donation at crownofmessiah.com and thank you for becoming a team member with us. We appreciate it.